marriage puts together two people who have different backgrounds and personalities and attitudes and habits and cultures and ideas. And for many people, it just sounds like a recipe for disaster. And yet the book of Genesis tells us that marriage was a gift from God. Two human beings to bless and to enrich us. Men and women were created to be together. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 2 this morning. From verse 18 and down to the end of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. Throughout the the creation account, God's verdict on his work was that it was good. Seven times God is, it records God saying, and God saw that it was good. God was pleased with his creation because it reflected and revealed his character and his glory. But at the start of the passage, God said something in his creation was not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. God had created a perfect world of awe-inspiring wonder and majesty. And last week we read how the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. That garden was a paradise of bountiful provision, of amazing beauty, of daily communion with God, of satisfying and meaningful work. And yet still, there was something that wasn't right. Something wasn't good. On his own, man could not fulfill his purpose and God's command to be fruitful and increase in number. But there was more than that. On his own, man was lonely. There were emotional and intellectual and relational needs that could not be met even in paradise. And none of the other animals, of course, that God could, that may, had made could meet this need. 
This was emphasized by God when he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. A few weeks back, when we were looking at the creation week, we noticed how God frequently named his creation. Remember how he named the, 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 the sun, the, the, the sea and the sky? And he named the different, anim, uh, different situations that they were, they were in, the parts of the world. And that was seen as God expressing his authority and his rule over the, the world. And so Adam, he was doing something similar here. Naming the animals. Because as God's representative on earth, he had been called to rule over them. Now some people claim that this, object to this, because they say it would just be impossible. Especially if all of this is just taking place in day six of creation week. But let me just say that Adam didn't name every animal on this planet. He only gave names to all of the livestock, the birds of the air, and the, and the beasts of the field. That would exclude a whole load of different animals, like insects and marine organisms and amphibians and, and so much more. And then, as we've already talked about, we don't know how many of those kinds of animals there were on the earth at that time. Remember, there have been a lot of variation within the kinds of the animals that God created, but not from one kind to another. As we're thinking about the dogs, all the different breeds of dogs have all come from one ancestor. But I think it's really interesting for me, you know my background in science, to see Adam do something that scientists do all the time these days. Naming and classifying the animals and the organisms that are on this planet. But the point of all of this was not really that Adam would give a name to these animals, but rather it was so that he could see that no suitable helper would would be found on this planet at the time. These animals were wonderful and awe-inspiring. And those of us who have pets, whether they are dogs or cats or gerbils or chinchillas or fish, because I'm not allergic to fish, but I'm allergic to most most of the other animals, eh, we know the joy and the affection that they can bring into our lives. Don't we? We love our pets. And yet, those animals were less than Adam. None of them could be his physical, emotional, intellectual or spiritual companion. No animal can replace our need for human relationships. That's because that's what we're designed for. I'm sure many of us know this verse in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. It says, God is love. God is love. This is who he's always been. Even before he created the world. But God has never been lonely. Because he has been forever been a trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit in a perfectly loving communion. I don't know if you remember John chapter 17. Jesus said to his father, You love me from before the creation of the world. God has always been a a fellowship, a relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so as his image bearers, those who have been made in the image of God, we've been created to reflect the perfect love of God. In our love and companionship with people. 
So it's not good for us to be alone. We were not made to live in isolation. We were not made to thrive in seclusion. We need other people. And so God stepped in to solve this problem of man's loneliness. Verse 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable for him. Now I know that some women are offended by this verse. Deeply offended by this verse. By the idea that woman was made to be a helper for man. Because in their minds, this implies that woman was somehow inferior to man. That she was made just to serve him as some subordinate. But nothing could be further from the truth. The idea of helper does not demand us to say, well, that means inferior. In fact, the vast majority of the time that this word translated helper is in the Old Testament, it doesn't refer to women. Actually, it refers to the Lord. Like this very famous psalm, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So if we can talk about the Lord being our helper, then it's not no disrespect to Eve to say that she was a helper for Adam. In fact, it's an honour given to her. That she was made with the potential to give such effective support and strength to her husband. And this is emphasised by the fact that this woman is, was, is, was named suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. No other creature on this planet was suitable for him, for man. No other creature on this planet could not match his level But the woman could. In fact, the woman was a perfect match for the man. Now, I read that this phrase literally means that she was like opposite him. And it suggests the idea of complementarity. What I mean by that is men and women are not exactly the same as each other. I'm sure that's not a newsflash for most of us here. We are clearly different in so many ways. But this difference is part of God's design for humanity. So that we may complement each other. So we could balance each other. So we could complete each other. It means that together we can more fully live out God's purpose for our lives than we can alone. And so woman was made to complement man and complete him. As someone famously said, a man is not complete until he's married. Then he's finished. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> but I think this idea of partnership is even emphasised in the way that God created the first woman. I know it sounds really odd to us, but when you think of it, it's beautiful. It's the first act of surgery. Fortunately, with a supernaturally and a supernatural anaesthetic. And God took a rib from Adam, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man. 
Now just let me say, just in case some people are thinking or some people are counting, this does not mean that men have fewer ribs than women, even though some people think that. Okay. Adam was the only person who lost a rib for God to make his wife. Okay? He was the only one. His DNA that was passed on to his sons and his daughters would obviously code for a full set of ribs. Okay? But it does mean that the man and the woman were biologically connected. They were made of the same stuff. Now the Bible doesn't say why God used a rib. Why not another part of the body? But there's a a guy, Matthew Henry. He was from the 18th century. And he wrote a big, huge commentary on the Bible. And this is what he said. He said that woman was not made out of his head to top him. Not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But out of his side. To be equal with him. Under his arm to be protected. And near his heart to be beloved. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Of why God made women this way. The woman came from Adam's side so that she could be alongside him. Not above him, not below him, but alongside him. So that they could share together in partnership and companionship as equals. And that is what Adam expressed when he met his wife for the first time. I have to smile here. Adam meets his wife for the first time and he bursts into poetry. As some people do, like Des, but not me. This is what he said. Verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, I'm sure you don't think that's the most romantic poetry ever eh, composed. But it does show in an instant that that Adam recognised just how special the woman was. He started with what's, what's described as an expression of delight, which could be translated, at last! Or, wow, look at that! But Adam describes this woman as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What's that about? Well, today, we talk about our family, maybe, as our flesh and blood. In the Bible, they talked about their family as their flesh and bone. So, Adam is saying here that this woman is his family. He could not say that about the animals, because they were not as equal. They were not made in the image of God. But this woman is made in the image of God. She is equally unique in this world. Equally the pinnacle of God's creation. Equally made in the image and likeness of God. To resemble God. To relate to God. To reproduce in His image. His image to, re- to represent His rule. And to reflect His glory. And so Adam here was agreeing with what God said in chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Equally made in the image of God. Equally amazing. Then Adam named his bride, woman. 
which is the Hebrew, Isha, which is related to his, the name for man, which is Ish. So this is the foundation of marriage in the Bible. It is that although men and women are different from each other, they are equal in name and in nature. So that they may, may provide help and companionship to each other as they complement each other as God's image bearers. And so the emphasis of this passage is that marriage is a gift from God to humanity. In fact, God is pictured here as the father of the bride. See then verse 22? He brought her to the man. The first giving away of a bride. And it's God who walks Eve down the aisle. What an amazing picture of how special this relationship was going to be. But it also means that if marriage is God's gift, then he has the right to define what it is. Marriage, first of all, means leaving. Verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Marriage involves a radical change of priorities. No longer is their primary connection and concern to be their parents, their birth family, or anybody else. Instead, the husband and wife are called to forsake all others and make each other their first priority after God, of course. Now, that leaving might seem like an obvious point, okay? In fact, some people probably get married in order to leave their father and their mother. But if that leaving doesn't happen, then marriages are always going to struggle. So leaving the family unit behind in order to form a new family unit is incredibly important. Secondly, the man will be united to his wife. Marriage is not a casual acquaintance. It's not a loose relationship. Instead, God has designed that the man will cling to, hold fast to, be stuck like glue to his wife. I know some people for that idea sounds like a restriction, like a limitation, like a prison sentence. But God has designed it that it's in the passion and the permanence of that faithful relationship. It's then that true love and intimacy can grow and deepen and develop. And then thirdly, they will become one flesh. Marriage is designed by God to be the most intimate of human relationships where two people literally become one physically emotionally intellectually spiritually where they share everything the joys and the sorrows their successes their struggles where they just do life together so this is clearly an exclusive relationship Marriage, by God's design, is monogamous and heterosexual. It's one man and one woman. And it's lifelong. This is not a temporary agreement that can be abandoned whenever we want. Instead, it's a lifelong commitment between two people that's supposed to remain until either of them dies. 
So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. And that's what's emphasized by Jesus. When in the Gospels, Jesus reaffirms this design for marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. So whatever our world thinks about marriage, however they try to redesign it, or pass laws to say it's not no longer this, it's now this. We go back to the Bible and say this is God's plan for marriage. It's for one man and one woman to leave their old family connections behind and commit to giving themselves to each other in lifelong, intimate, faithful and loving relationship. And Adam and Eve experienced that, at least for a time. The intimacy and openness of a perfect marriage. In verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that this, this all changed when sin came into the world. And they felt the need to hide themselves, not just from God, but actually from each other as well. But we'll leave that for the next chapter. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means that as God's people, we need to respect God's design for marriage. Marriage should be honoured by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, the book of Hebrews says. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Marriage is precious. And we need to honour it. We need to be different from this world. And, and respect it in every way. This also means that if we are married, then we need to seek to honour our marriage by loving and respecting our spouse. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, each one, of, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's not enough just to say, oh well, we'll stick together, but I don't want to talk to you, or I don't want to be nice to you. It is having a deepening love for each other. And respect for each other. But this is also not, important, not just important for those who are married. It's also important for everybody. Because Psalm 68 verse 6 says, God sets the lonely in families. His design is that children will be brought up in a stable and loving and nurturing environment that has as its foundation a faithful and committed marriage. And many of us know the blessing of this. And some of us know the hurt when this falls apart. So we need to support and nurture marriage because we need loving marriages to produce loving families. And when marriage falls apart, our society falls apart. But finally, I don't want to stop at that point because there's another part to think about. Because we need to remember that we are here this morning because God provided a deeper solution 
to the problem that it's not good for man to be alone. God provided a deeper solution to that. One part of that is that God offers to us the privilege of being part of His family. Being among those who belong to the family of believers. And in His family, God invites us to enjoy that deep love and friendship that our hearts cry out for. God says it's not good for us to be alone, so we should be together. We should meet together regularly. We should support each other. We should love one another. We should encourage one another. And all of the other one another commands that are throughout the whole of the Bible. But there's an even greater gift in this. And I'm sorry we don't have more time to think about it this morning. Because marriage, as wonderful as it is, it's only temporary. It's only earth-based. It's only a picture of something eternal and something heavenly. So this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of wa- with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. This is the ultimate solution to our loneliness. It is that we today as the church are the bride of Christ. Jesus gave his life for us so that we could leave behind our old life of slavery to sin and condemnation and death. And so that we could be joined to him in a faithful covenant relationship. And so that we could become one with him in intimacy and love. And one day Jesus is coming back to claim his bride and to take us home to the home that he has prepared for us. So folks, marriage is a wonderful gift from God to mankind. And we should value it. We should respect it. We should honour it. We should thank God for it. Husbands, there are some things that you should not say to your wife. And let me add, and vice versa. But whether we're married or not yet married, whether we never will be married, or we've gone through the, the, the anguish of bereavement or divorce, we can rejoice that Jesus has brought us into something better than marriage. The thing that marriage was pointing towards. Because through faith in Christ we have been united with the perfect bridegroom whose love is unconditional whose love is unlimited, whose commitment to us is unchanging, and whose relationship with us will never 